So many leaders will become leaders to bypass what's underneath. And then typically what we see, because it's all over media, is there's a big crash and burn. When you're driven by such demons to become above that, you're inevitably going to crash and burn. And that's the fear. Oh, my God. Like, let's hide behind my expertness so I don't have to deal with my vulnerability. Stepping into leadership means stepping into rejection and being misunderstood. It is just a part of the physics of leading and putting yourself out there in any capacity. And I know this sucks, right? The burdens of social rejection of any kind can become all-consuming in an effort to do whatever it takes to never go through that kind of pain again. And if your approach to leading is trying to avoid getting hurt, then a crash and burn is inevitable. We watch leaders crash and burn all the time. We watch too often with a morbid fascination as leaders fall out of grace because their unaddressed pain led them on an unsustainable path of poor choices, even deadly and dangerous choices, all to avoid feeling the vulnerability of rejection. Many of us struggle to give feedback effectively for fear of retribution, and many these days feel entitled to offloading their pain on us, but call it constructive criticism leaving us feeling slimed. As a result, we have lost the capacity for giving and receiving feedback well, along with the ability to give and receive constructive criticism and accountability. And that only furthers a toxic cycle of avoiding rejection at all costs. These tender wounds from the various times in your life where you experience the pain of rejection leave their mark because rejection hurts. Like, physically hurts. The rejection we experience is compounded by all we are seeing and experiencing today. And neuroscience teaches us that this kind of emotional pain is processed similarly to physical pain. It sure makes sense that we want to avoid rejection at all costs. And if you're stepping into the title, the power, and the access of leadership as a way to bypass the pain of rejection, it will not go well but many try. Shoot, I know I have, and I suspect you have too. I still remember the detailed memories of heartbreaks from adolescent crushes not reciprocated and the betrayals from those who were supposed to keep me safe and disappointments when friends and colleagues chose to stay quiet over rocking the boat, therefore throwing me under the bus in the process. All of these echoes from my story have fueled my own complicated relationship with the vulnerability of rejection. Stuffing the pain down and vowing to not care and never feel that way again was not a very productive way for me to deal with that rejection. No matter what we do, we care. We care what people think. We care about truly being understood and feeling significant. To not care is dangerous. (laughs) And caring can also feel incredibly dangerous too. Ah, the paradox of it all. And instead of digging deep and healing those rejection wounds, we try to achieve more power, more accolades, titles, control, oh, control, and worldly prestige. Now, my guest today is an expert personally and professionally on addressing trauma wounds of rejection instead of bypassing the pain of vulnerability. Dr. Frank Anderson is in demand as one of the nation's leading mental health professionals as a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. 
committing to promoting compassion, hope, healing, and nonviolence in the world. Frank specializes in the treatment of trauma and dissociation and is passionate about teaching brain-based psychotherapy and integrating current neuroscience knowledge with the IFS therapy model. Frank also travels around the world as a proponent and instructor of the internal family system psychotherapeutic modality, an evidence-based treatment that offers an accelerated path to self-awareness and permanent emotional healing. Pay attention to how we both approach power from differing perspectives. And note, we barely scratch the surface around the complexities and nuance around power. And listen for Frank's rumble with fame and his own pain and what he discovered as he did his own trauma work. And notice what stirred up in Frank as a result of parenting his two boys. There's nothing like parenting or caring for young ones that will send you on a fast path to what needs attention. Now, please welcome Dr. Frank Anderson to the Unburdened Leader podcast. You're listening to the Unburdened Leader and you all are in for a treat today with my colleague, Dr. Frank Anderson. Frank, welcome to the Unburdened Leader show. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. So I want to dig in. There's so much I want to cover today, but I want to note that you're both a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. Can you tell me about a time that inspired your focus? Because that's not a common duality many people hold in your area. It totally is not a common duality. And interestingly enough, I don't identify much anymore as a psychiatrist. It's a whole different pool of people. It's a whole different cohort. But I have a group of psychiatrists who are similar to me. So it's this weird group. I'll tell like like Dan Siegel, um, Bessel van der Kolk, Amy Banks is another person. And we're this group of people who never really fit into the psychiatric world. And we became primary therapists. Often, most of us are in this trauma field. And it's, it's a weird combination. I mean, what I can tell you is that I was really like moments of that kind of clarity, if you will. I I was in my medical school way back when, and it was in Chicago, and we had this very kind of very strong psychopharmacology receptors research program that I went to medical school with, Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's. They had this one analyst there, like one analyst in the whole department. And for our medical school training, they had us kind of talk to this analyst and rotate through with this analyst. And I was fascinated by what this person was doing separate from medications and all this kind of stuff. So it was like this opening to like, oh my gosh, we could do this too. And then when I went to my residency program, which was interesting because moving from Chicago to Boston, like Boston is so heavily psychoanalytic. You know, it's like the psychoanalytic mecca. I didn't really know that at the time, and I didn't even really know all that much about that. But it was, um, I was so lucky to go to this residency training program that got me, it was this very unique place. We worked with the chronically mentally ill. They had to be homeless with no insurance to get in. Okay, so it was like that population. And it was a Harvard affiliate hospital. So all the supervisors were analysts. 
So we were doing psychotherapy on the chronically mentally ill, and all of our supervision was um, by analysts. So we learned these very complicated roots of all these psychotic symptoms, and it was fascinating for me. It was just like I, I went to medical school because I was fascinated with the body. Mm. And really, like I wanted to know how my body worked. I wanted I was so curious about the body. But then when I started learning about the mind, it kind of blew me away. So I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So for, for some of my listeners or many of my listeners, they may not know what you mean by psychoanalysis or even really what's the true difference, the real basic difference between psychotherapy and psychology. Can you just do a brief like psychotherapy is this, psycho, psychiatry is this, and here's what psychoanalysis is. Yeah, totally. So, you know, in the like psycho psychology, I think most people are most familiar with psychology because that can include a social worker, that can include a psychologist, licensed mental health counselor, psychotherapy. Those are where you go to people, talk to talk to people mm-hmm. about your problems. And mo- yep. that's the biggest pool of people, right? Psychiatrists back in the day did both. And there was this group of people called analysts, psychoanalysts that was sitting on the couch, laying down, doing four sessions a week, very popular way back when, you know, Freudian psychoanalysis, so to speak. So there were years ago, many, many psychiatrists who also did therapy. But as psychiatrists are medical doctors, medical right? doctors, totally different medical training. doctors. Exactly. Go for totally different training. It's all about me- it's in medical school and psychiatry is one of the specialties that you can um, learn about. When biology and neurobiology became popular, psychiatry moved all into receptors, neurotransmitters, and medications. So Mm. psychiatrists then stopped doing psychotherapy or talking to people, and they became all about the medical model, fixing the brain, working with schizophrenia, working with bipolar disorder, kind of more major mental illness. So there mm-hmm. was this chasm, I think, created between psychiatrists, MDs, and then psychologists, social workers, licensed mental health counselors. They did the therapy, and then the psychiatrists did the meds. And honestly, looking back for me, I'm such a relational person. I love talking to people. Like doing meds would be so boring for me. Like I couldn't do it all day long. Um, So it was just this natural fit when I started seeing psychiatrists also talk to people. I was like, "This this is where I belong. This is where I belong. You know, most of these med visits are 15 minutes. That's what an insurance company covers. And you give somebody a med, you ask them their symptoms. Where psychotherapy, you spend an hour at least with people and you can sit and really talk to them. And the other piece that was a moment for me in my residency training program when I started talking to these people who had chronic mental illness, all of them had trauma histories. Like all of them had trauma histories. It was not coincidental for somebody with an acute bipolar episode or a schizophrenic breakdown or any number of ending, any number of severe life events that ended up having them be homeless with no insurance. I was just fortunate enough that Bessel van der Kolk, who's a very famous kind of trauma person, housed his trauma center at my residency training program. So it was this beautiful kind of serendipitous fit for me, sitting around talking to people with chronic mental illness, loving to connect with people and learning about their stories, and then to have Bessel van der Kolk 
at my residency training program, because then I just became the psychiatrist for Bessel, which meant I could give medications to people when the clinic needed it, but I was also able to do psychotherapy with everyone. So it was kind of this perfect fit for me. And I, I can't even believe that I'm in that. I don't, like I said, I don't even feel like I'm in the group of psychiatrists who only give meds. Like how, like how psychiatry is traditionally understood. Exactly. You got into medicine because of a desire to understand the body. And yeah. that was inspired in part by something that happened in your family. Yes. Totally. It's an experience with a family member. Can you tell us more about that? Well, it's interesting. So first there was this, how do I, how do I explain this? So, so the story unfolds for me like this. I went, my father's a pharmacist, my mother's a nurse, my uncle's a, a, an ophthalmologist. Like I came from such a medical family. Like I re, it was kind of funny, Rebecca, I didn't even know what an engineer was. I'm like, <laughs> those are the people who are on the train. Like I grew up in this medical family and I went to the University of Illinois, which was had a huge engineering program. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm with all these people who are in this engineering program, right? And so I ended up really learning about um, what engineering was. And I was in school with a bunch of really kind of very smart people who worked in this field of science and um, and a bunch of pre-med people. But I had gone in the pre-pharmacy program first because my father was a pharmacist. He had owned pharmacies. Of course, I was going to be um, a pharmacist. And I just got into college and loved learning about the body. So I was just so fascinated. And I ended up doing better than all of these pre-med people were doing anyways in school. I'm like, wait a minute. Like I was so passionate about it. I was doing really well. Why don't I go into medicine? That's what I thought. So I kind of shifted from pharmacy to pre-med. And then my sister had her first psychotic break while I was in college. And so I had this fascination with the body and then our family was so profoundly impacted by that. Like, oh, my God, talk about a game changer for our whole family. Uh, I was away at college when she had her first break. And, and, and that's when psychiatry became clear for me. Like, I had this fascination with the body. But then it was really rescue, rescue, rescue. You know, it was mm -hmm. we didn't know anything about this. My family was freaked out. We never had experienced anybody who had been psychotic before. They didn't know what it was. And even back then, I'll tell you, there was all this old-fashioned, some people may know this, some people may not know this, this term schizophrenogenic mother. Like back in the day, you blamed the family for men major mental illness, right? And so they were searching for why this was, and it was really kind of a, and I just never, that never sat well with me. <laughs> I was like, this is not about that. You know, um, so it was really with my sister's break that I was like, oh, my God, it was totally rescue. I need to I need to rescue her. Um, and so I dove from traditional medicine, look, exploring what I was going to do as a doctor to, oh, my gosh, I've got to go into psychiatry. Um, and I'll just finish the, the story and bring it full circle, honestly. So it started out with my rescuing my sister and lo and behold, surprise, surprise, <laughs> as it goes for uh, many of us who are wounded healers, right? I, I realized after that drive to save her, and then I got into my residency training program, which they start having you look at yourself. I'm like, holy cow, this isn't really about my sister. This is about me. 
So it started out kind of looking at her and then really got stirred up, got so stirred up working with people who had severe mental illness. It was so profound and so powerful. It stirred up my own trauma history um, in a profound, profound way. So um, I was fortunate. It was serendipity for me to have Bessel van der Kolk Trauma Center at my residency training program because then it was like, okay, I'm home. Okay, this is where I need to be, you know, and here I am, I don't know, you know, 30 years later, I've devoted my whole career to this. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I love, love the title of this podcast because this is so much about being the unburdened leader, unburdened healer. Like that has been my journey. It really, really has because I've evolved and grown so much healing my own stuff and then being, you know, someone who's one of the leaders in the field and certainly around internal family systems. So, you know, that's kind of. No, thank you for that. And thank you so much for sharing that. And it's, it is amazing how the burdens in our story often do inspire our life's work. And that's something yes. that just clicked with me the more I sat with people. And, and so combined with IFS and that experience definitely did inspire the show and the focus of it. As you talk about this 30-year journey and realizing as you were diving into trauma, it stirred up your own and you're at this beautiful place now, but there's such, uh, for so many, a resistance or a desire to bypass or get to the end and even still so much shame and stigma yep. around trauma, <clears throat> around struggle even, or even naming it. And so how did you navigate that, especially in a world? Talk a little bit about your journey as you were dealing with your own stuff around this community that's in the helping profession and navigating those polarities of, oh, my gosh, we want to help people, but be fixed and be arrived and keep it all together. Well, this is something that's really near and dear to my heart, honestly. This is a hugely a passion for me, honestly. it's I would say it's almost part of my platform. If you want to be clear, if, if I can be totally honest about it. And I can remember. So as I was affiliated with Bessel van der Kolk, like you become the expert. Bessel's one of these leaders, Judy Herman and Bessel van der Kolk, were like these two trauma gurus in our field. Mm -hmm. I was affiliated with him. We had annual conference every year. And then, you know, as a, an intelligent person, I became in the expert lane instead of the survivor lane, right? And there was this us and them dichotomy always. Yes. We'd get up on that pulpit. Hello, I'm, you know, back then I was, I'm Dr. Frank Wastella and I'm the expert. And let me tell you about, you know, the problems that you have because I'm the expert. And it always felt bizarre to me as somebody who had a trauma history, who then, you know, jumped into the expert category as opposed to the survivor category. And there was this us and them, us and them di um, dynamic always. One year, I'll never forget it because it was pivotal for me, although not quite where I hoped we'd be, Bessel had a survivor's conference. Okay, so I was like, oh my goodness. First was time, this? this was, what oh my gosh. This? Oh, this was, you know, probably 20 years ago. It was a long okay. time ago. Um, and I remember it was at one of the uh, hotels in downtown Boston and he had a survivor's conference, which was wonderful, but yet all the experts were still there teaching the survivors. Do you know what I mean? But at least we opened the doors to survivors coming to this conference, which I was applauded him for doing that. Hmm. So that was a step in the right direction. And I remember saying, you know, 
I don't know. I, I guess it had to do with, um, I guess I'll, I'll tie it to coming out also. You know, when, when, when I came, I was, I was older when I came out. I didn't come out early. So coming out as a gay man, I was like, God, I had to break through this whole straight stigma because I was a white straight male once upon a time. And so I kind of moved out of that, you know, privileged group and I became a gay person. So that was an experience of like, wow, let's get rid of this crazy us and them divide. And then secondary, I would say, honestly, was the divide in the trauma world, like the expert versus the survivor. Yes. And it is, it's a platform for me, like everywhere I speak, including this podcast, right? As you can see, I am, I'm gay and I have a trauma history. And I happen to be an expert. Like I'm really bridging that gap. It's so important for me to bridge that gap, you know, to get rid of this us and them mentality, which is so shaming and stigmatizing. And, you know, it's kind of like, I don't think of myself as a role model that much, but if I can inspire people who are out there with trauma histories to, to also know that they can be leaders in the field too, that it doesn't have to be this us and them and destigmatize shame. I am really all about that. I, I really, really am. One of the most common things I hear with folks, even outside of kind of our, our bubble within kind of the mental health field is even just anyone in any leadership role, mm -hmm. there's this underlying belief and yeah. fear that they carry that yeah. I will lose credibility, yeah. I will lose trust, reputation, or my business will be hurt yeah. if I am real about my story. Now, I'm not saying like when you're in it, you share it with everyone because that's not helpful to anybody. Right. But to be honest about your story, and and as a result, I see then there's this polarity of then anyone else struggling we shut they shut want to shut that down let's keep it tidy let's keep it neat yeah and so what would you say to those even outside of that the helping profession world of anyone in a leadership position that has a trauma story which you and i both know mm -hmm. most people have more than one trauma like yeah. you, you teach everyone gets a pass with their first trauma That's right. and, so, uh, and i joke and say if you've been through middle school and puberty you've been through trauma so <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so check check um what would you what would you say to that to those that are just listening on i yeah, I can't, I can't share these things or talk about these things. That's, that's unprofessional and I'll lose credibility and it could hurt my business and my reputation. Well, here's the way I think about it. And, and the way that I've come to this being a, a wounded leader, if you will, um, is mm. I think many people, I think many people become leaders to bypass their trauma. Okay, keep going with that. Okay. Go deep with that. Because what ends up happening, and I will say myself initially was part of this too, even though I had in the back of my head, wait a minute, why is there us and them? I became an expert. I became a leader because I was compensating for feeling less than and inadequate because of my trauma history. So many leaders will become leaders to bypass what's underneath. And then typically what we see, because it's all over media, is there's a big crash and burn, okay? When you're driven, right? When you're driven by such demons to become above that, 
you're inevitably going to crash and burn. And that's the fear. Oh my God, like let's hide behind my expertness so I don't have to deal with my vulnerability, you know? And I, there was a little bit of that for me. I remember the moment I was with a dear friend, Amy Banks. I'm like, you know, I'm going, I'm going to be famous someday. It was this weird kind of thing of famous and it was driven by my wound. It was a wound driven desire. And this was many, many years ago. Okay. And as I found IFS, as I continued to do my work, continued to do my work, I'm a, I'm a lifer. I'm a therapy lifer. I will always be in therapy. As I started healing my trauma, healing my trauma, like the fame thing totally fell to the wayside. It was something I had no interest in at all. As a matter of fact, it was a little bit kind of gross for me because it was very unrelational. There was nothing relational about fame. So I really got taken that away. And what I, what happened over time is I've become a healed leader. Okay. So I'm not driven by success. I'm not driven by being famous. I'm not driven by being a leader. Actually, the more I healed my trauma, the more I'm doing what I love, which then, because it's coming from a connected place within me, ends up making me, as a byproduct, more successful. It's not my drive at all. So there's a very, for me, if you're working on yourself, your success comes from within, and it's not driven by your demons, and it's not, it's not, propelled by your protective parts that need to compensate, if that makes sense. So this was something that I just really, over time, over time, over time, I'm happier than I've ever been in my whole life. I'm so much clearer as it relates to my history, my wounding. And so honestly, now I'm a I'm a calm leader. <laughs> I, I'm not driven to lead. I'm leading from a peaceful place, not a place of power. And it wasn't where I started out by any means. And I can see the evolution of that over my career. So the more that I have healed, the more I've naturally become a leader in a way that just feels good because I'm helping people and doing what I love. Like the motivation Mm -hmm. is totally different now from where I started. And I do believe most people start in the leadership desire from a place of wound, not from a place of healing. And I feel fortunate enough to be able to have made that transition, I believe, through the course of my career. And I don't know that everybody makes that. Well, I mean, hanging out and working with severely mental ill mental illness along with the being in the circles of Bessel, it's hard not to. And and again, it sounds like things just really clicked for you. And then discovering IFS, which we will uh, get into that. Yeah. You touched. I want to circle back to something you said about leadership and power, because this is another big topic too. I think there's two two folds of this. Some folks are hungry for that power, and that's definitely something I saw in D.C. Right when I worked yes. in D.C. You don't make the big bucks working, you know, in government, but it, you it's the power yeah. and the reputation yeah. that you is you're wealthy in yeah. or, or strive to be wealthy in. The other side, so many people don't realize how powerful they are. Mm. And so there's an interesting kind of 
tension with the word power and especially what's going on in our culture right now as we unpack that. And so when you say, you know, you're not leading from a place of power, that that just kind of caught me because I see you as someone as very powerful and powerful in that. Can you unpack what you meant by that statement? And I'll follow up accordingly. Yeah. So I think what I was talking about is power driven by wound. Ah, there okay. We go. okay. Power driven by wound. Um, and because that kind of power is to dominate, to get more, to be bigger than it's relative, right? It's that seeking more, more, more kind of power, which is driven by the inadequacy of the wound underneath. So that kind of power, like it's so interesting when I think of, I don't even really think of myself as powerful at all. (laughs) I think of myself as present and doing my purpose and being aligned with my truth. Now, if that comes across as power, great, but that's not what it feels like to me. It feels more like alignment and truth and in my passion and in my joy and in my creativity. That's what it feels like. So it doesn't feel like power. You know, I try, sometimes I'll talk about calm power, but it's it's not even, power has that connotation of imbalance in less than, bigger than, for me, at least in the way we use it culturally, you know, because I just feel like I'm me and I'm clear and I'm in my truth and I will join you. We are equal. (laughs) We are equal. I will be in my truth. You be in your truth. And isn't this amazing? You know, it's made me successful to be in my truth and, and be in my center but I, yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I feel authentic more than powerful. I don't know and, if that and, makes sense. I think that's your experience. I think it's a really cool, cool to hear unpacking that. And I, I do believe that we all are powerful and that we have, I think I work with a lot mm. of majority women who don't, haven't yes. owned their power. So yes. that, I think maybe that's where I'm coming from. Or a lot of leaders, both men and women I've worked with over the years that underestimate their power for good. But I think because of so many of our trauma histories, we see power and so deeply connected to our trauma and wounding. We don't want to be connected to that, right? Um, But I think you are a powerful person for good is how are we using our power? Let me say a little bit more about that because you're absolutely right when you say that because I have worked a lot on fear of powerful because it gets associated with a perpetrator. So You personally? Yeah, personally, yes. Personally, I've worked with... So when you say the word power... Like historically, I've had this association of power equals perpetration. Perpetrators Uh are powerful. So I have been fearful of power because it meant perpetrator energy, you know, dominating that whole, you know, way. Manipulation, coercion, control. So I've been very kind of, I don't want to be powerful because that has, that's scary for me. And if I'm powerful, historically, and this is what happens in a lot of trauma, perpetrators attack powerful people because that goes against their mission. Okay, so power can feel scary. It certainly did for me personally. Oh my gosh, if I'm in my power, I'm at risk of getting attacked. 
So it's taken me a while to be able to embrace me in my fullest capacity. You would call that embracing my power and not feel scared about it or feel okay about it um, in a way that feels good as opposed to scary because it's going to get squashed or taken away or associated with something negative. Okay. So this brings me back. This is, thank you for discerning this because my brain went back to when I first met you, when I attended as a participant before I was on your um, PA training team for your trauma and neuroscience level two training in IFS. And I don't know if it was you or Dick that had said, a lot of times people don't, they, they are triggered or activated or parts within us by being in self yeah, and self right. energy. And I had my own inner brain explosion yeah. because that was when I, where my traumas happened. The more in self I was, yes. was when I was the most hurt. You got it. And That's so, fine. and I also saw that in a lot of those that I've worked with over the years too, the more confident I was, yeah. the more clear I was, the more I embodied that, the more I attracted that perpetrator energy. Yes. And so then there was a lot of adapting for me and, and then unlearning yes. as a result of my own healing healing journey. So I just think this is an interesting nuance um, because depending on your story that there's right. power power is an interesting trailhead in itself then. Yes. You got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and I it's interesting because yeah, and I do love I love this discussion actually unpacking the word power because it really does have a lot of different meanings for many people. And, and where I am right now, and I may be somewhere different in 10 years or five years, but I don't, I think of, I probably will be, right? Yeah, but, I was like, yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I think of self, alignment, truth is authenticity more than power. I think it's a powerful place to live from. Yes. Okay. It's a powerful yes. place to live from, but I don't experience it as powerful. I experience it as clear, authentic, truthful, expansive. So self, that alignment is is a naturally powerful place, I guess, but it just feels good and truthful and aligned and full of energy. It's and that that's powerful to me when yes. I'm in the room with folks that with folks like you yeah. that hold that that's powerful. And then I've been in the room with power over. That's yes. how I differentiate it, that's right. where there isn't this sense of we. Yes, this isn't isn't a collaborative. It is hierarchical. That's right. It is, you know, very much attached to the system of white supremacy. We are all in the process yes. of unburdening yeah. right now, like the nuances of that. That's right. Um, so, I, yeah, this is interesting. The trailhead of power, because the message was you should not be powerful. Right. You're t- you're too much. Yeah. Right. Oh yes. Um, oh yes. You, Okay, keep going with that. Why are you saying, oh, yes? My whole life was, I was too much. I was too much. That it's like, you know. Subgroup. Oh, my goodness. You know, my expansiveness, my emotionality, you know, my my effeminate traits and qualities. It was all too much. It squashed it all to be able to fit into this Midwestern straight world I grew up in. So, oh, my goodness, did I live with. And now I'm like, you know, I am me. And if you don't like that, that's totally fine. But I will not not be me anymore. I am done doing that. 
you know, we have this running joke in our family. Um, my kids, because I'm very expressive, because I'm very passionate, I happen to be Italian, so that just fuels that whole thing, right? <laughs> but my kids will say to my husband, act like Papa, act like Papa. Which And, and then my husband joking was like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. I love that. You know, like he gets really expressive and I'm like, you darn right, sister. I will embrace, I will embrace me from here on in, you know, and maybe that comes across as powerful or whatever it is, but it's like me, right? It's contagious. It's a kind of contagious because we're tapping into the energy that does feel freeing and there's power in that, but power can be weaponized and power can be healing. You brought up family and I'm excited to to shift our conversations that a little bit. You and I are both parents, two kids. Yours are, um, well, your youngest is this same as my oldest. How how old is your yes, oldest? My oldest is 17. And That's my right. And your youngest is 13. And he just turned 13 That's and correct. mine is turning 13 in a month. And I mean, just before this conversation, she dropped a bomb on me, like big yeah. conversation, um, which was beautiful. And we, but on that note is about, about her neurological differences. Yeah. You and I both parent kids with neurological differences. And I think that's what drew me to you mm. when you shared you had a son on the autism spectrum and that he was the same age as, as yeah. my daughter. I was like, okay, all right, one of my people. Yeah. <laughs> one of my people, because just the way that you approached it, I, I felt very alone in how I mm-hmm. conceptualized this. It wasn't a problem. She was never broken. Yeah. I just wanted to help her navigate a world that might see that differently. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, we, we talk about internal family systems. Mm-hmm. How has this methodology of seeing how we view our inner our systems, how has that helped you parent your kids? Oh, that's such a complicated, I mean, that that's a whole three-day workshop in and of itself, honestly. There's so, I know. Much, there's so much in this. I mean, I'll-, I'll I know you're passionate about it, but I, I if you really, can give- I'll give, so I'll talk, let me talk about my first son first and then my second son. So- um, because it, it, that is the order for me, honestly. So uh, in, in reality, when I told you I had a trauma history, when we had my first son, such deep stuff got activated within me because of my very early attachment trauma that I had no clue about, but it activated such deep, powerful stuff in me. Having my first son is what shot me into IFS therapy, interestingly enough. I was feeling things so profoundly and so powerfully. I'm like, I will not perpetuate this. I will not perpetuate this. So I shot it. I was one of those level one, level two, level three, boom, 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 become a lead trainer. I shot up that so passionately. It was all driven by not perpetuating my trauma because it got activated in such a profound way. So really my IFS journey does start with the birth of my first son because mm. it just was so powerful what kids stir up in us like nothing else ever. True story. Right? True story. Right? And so that was my main motivation to dive into this in the way that I did. And then Interestingly enough, as I, and I go very spiritual in this way because I I love the IFS spirituality um, connection there, nothing is happening for any kind of random reason in my view. It's all related and it's all connected because after my son was, my oldest was three, I just had this yearning inside, this big yearning that was like, 
I need this. I need another kid. Like, you know, my husband and I had agreed on one. We're going to, I needed to have another one. I didn't even know what that was about. It it was just such a powerful force within me, right? It was so Mm -hmm. driven by other forces. And as it turned out, my boys were conceived on the same exact day, four years apart. No way. By the same birth mom. She didn't even recognize those dates. And she called me up. So we did surrogacy with my first son, who was born on March 25th. My, she called me up out of the blue and said, oh, my goodness, are you interested in another child? I got pregnant, and we really can't have another child. Same day they were conceived. They're a day apart birth-wise, okay, my two boys. And so we have our second son on March 26th, four days later. So it was this thing that was like crazy. Like, you can't even make that up. And when we when kind of taking care of him and seeing – the differences and just starting noticing some of these things early on, I was so overwhelmed. Honestly, I was like, Mm -hmm. I can't do this. (laughs) Like I'm taking care of patients. I'm taking care of kids. I'm taking care of this kid who is just not sleeping for nine straight months, who has ear infections, who has GI trouble. Like you did, we didn't know, you know, with the spectrum the way the stuff on the spectrum unfolds over time, you have no clue. It took many years, many years to get clarity around what was going on, right? But we were in this intensity, and I'll remember the moment because I was just so distraught and I was just so overwhelmed. And I just was like at the, at the wit's end for me. And my husband said, just go to the gym and just ride Go on a go on the treadmill. Go 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 exercise. You need to take a break. So I was on the treadmill, and I had my eyes closed. I had my headphones on, and I heard. I saw a light, and I heard a noise, and it was a voice, and it said, "You know, he's here to teach you as much as you're here to teach him." Okay, <laughs> it was the moment. It was so powerful for me, and it just everything settled from that moment on. And he was very young. I don't know if he was like maybe two or three at that time. And it, it really shifted everything for me. It's like, okay, I'm here to learn from him. Okay. I'm here to help him, but really here it's shifted that learning from him. And that's where for me in IFS, like he is who he is. The world needs to learn how to, be Hello. with him as opposed to him trying to fit into the world, right? Thank you. There was there was such a shift for me in that awareness. And that was that was some divine something. And it was exactly in the moment that I needed it. And it shifted a lot for me because there's so much pressure to fit in, to go to good schools, to do this way. There's this script that I grew up with that I had hoped to perpetuate honestly with my kids because that was what you were supposed to do. That's what culture says. That's what my family of origin says. And we are the most atypical. We are one of the most atypical families I know, which I can embrace fully now. I'll tell you this one funny story as my oldest is now looking at college essays. He's like, he wants to go to culinary school, right? He's like, I have got the college essay down. I'm like, what are you talking about, honey? He's like, I mean, come on. I've got I've got two dads. I got two gay dads and an autistic brother. I'm a sure in with my college essay. <laughs> 
like he's like I've I've been born into the most unique family ever. Like I'm I've got this. I've got my I've got my uh, essay down. No problem. Like this is my life experience. Like he's like look at my life, right? And we have this totally what is unique, right? We have this totally unique family, but it is unique for me in that I've given up a lot of the supposed tos and shoulds in this family and we're quirky and we're odd and we don't fit in (laughs) and it's kind of okay. As a matter of fact, it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's still, it's still, I have to remind myself of that. Like I don't want to fit in. I want to belong. And I, I think one of the things my husband had to decide on early on with our daughter was we wanted the four walls of our home. Yes. to be a place because we knew that the world was going to be the world, but how do we create mm. the space and whoever comes in this space is able to be able to go, Hey, I appreciate you yeah. as you are. And so it really shifted our entire world yeah. for the better. I often say she, she was the catalyst to the community that we have yeah. today. She inspired it because of that boundary that we wanted to go. We're not, she's not broken. Yeah. You know, autism isn't something that breaks you. Yeah. And it's the more that I learn, especially with girls, yeah. the more that I learn, there's so many people are going under the radar and how skilled yes. the, the protectors are in girls to mask. That's right. And so they do that. Um, how I would curious to how you would describe how using the IFS lens to parenting is different than conven- conventional wisdom around parenting. How do you on a high level... <clears throat> you know, differentiate that approach? A couple things. So I'll certainly speak of that because I do workshops on parenting and IFS now, which I'm really loving to do. Um, the thing that I'll, I want to back up a little bit, because when you're talking about your sure. family and the, that safety within the home, that's a place for me, even though I can really embrace he's not broken, the world needs to orient themselves around him. I hold a lot of tenderness and pain in my heart to have him have a good experience yes. in this world we live in. So I want to oh, just yes. bring up that other side. Like, hey, world, you have a problem if you can't accept who he is. I'm okay with that. But it's, hey, honey, I want you to have a good experience in this world that doesn't see you as normal. So that's something I'm often aware of. And it warm, you know, that's where my heart can just met, fall apart. When, when the world doesn't allow him to be who he is and how do we help him navigate that? I, I agree. It, it's just more of a radical acceptance of they're at where they're at, the world, but we're going to still do our part to change that. But we need to cultivate a world within our family. Yes. So there is respite yeah. because it can be brutal out there. And we didn't, neither my husband and I grew up with um, with those neurological differences, but we both yeah. know what it's like to be different in our own ways. Right. And I think, as you say, parenting does break you open. It finds whatever little crack still needs some attention yeah, totally. <laughs> and goes for the jugular. Totally. So it, it, I don't know if it'll ever stop hitting those tender spots, Frank, right? I don't know watching yeah. how the world navigates that one thing that I don't know about you think I realize acceptance we've gotten way farther with this but inclusion right we are still in infancy yeah to really come to my party right um come over to my house uh 
Yeah. Come to this team event. Yeah. It's going to be uncomfortable or inconvenient. You got it. And that's where I think the tenderness for me comes up still. I think that's what you're referencing. Totally, totally. And you know what? As, as we're talking about it, Rebecca, honestly, I think a lot of parents feel this even when people are not on the spectrum. Like it's for you sure. Know, like it's it's the spectrum no of every child fitting in and belonging well in the in life because nobody does. Everybody's going to bump up against it. It just is more extreme perhaps with people on the spectrum and the world is in infancy around accepting this group because it's a relatively newer popular diagnosis so to speak so the world is not used to it yet in that Mm -hmm. way right um but yeah no i think i think every parent struggles with that with their child whether they're on the spectrum or not it's just i couldn't agree more. you know um i feel that with my older son Right. Wanting him to have a great high school experience and, you know, fit in with friends and all this kind of stuff. It's it's the same thing. In regards yeah. to the parenting issue, like that is something really, like I said, it drove me into IFS. But then over these last 17 years of being a parent, I have healed so much of my own trauma as a result of my children. And yes. I really, they have triggered me more than anybody else has ever <laughs> triggered me. I was, uh, my husband and I, you know, we're together 22 years now, which meant I've had prior relationships. So I worked out a lot of my intimacy stuff earlier and him and I have a really great relationship, but then having kids activated a whole nother level of things that I didn't even know existed in me, Right. So they have helped me heal so much. But what I'm aware of and why I've created this parenting curriculum is parents get in the way of kids' development so often because of their own histories. This is my orientation, that we get triggered because of what kids do to us. And for me, there's so many books on how to raise children Yes. I want to write a book on how to raise parents (laughs) because parents are the ones who need more of the training and the healing because the more I've cleared myself, the more my kids get the parent they need, not the parent that gets triggered by their behavior because kids' behavior, by definition, is immature and inappropriate. That's who they are by definition. They're supposed to be that. What ends up happening is that impulsive, that reactive, that immature behavior triggers adults because of their histories. And then adults react to the kid to shut them up and stop it so the parent wound doesn't get triggered. Yeah, stop crying because it hurts me. I want to feel better, so shut your shiz down. And and (laughs) when you cried, if you cry, it reminds me of when I cried and I got hit for crying. So Mm -hmm. don't cry because my wound is getting activated right now. So we don't know that that's happening so fast. It's not at all conscious. It, It happens at such a deep level. And again, it's easier to read a book to fix your kid than to do your healing work about your history. It's a much easier thing because it's much less painful to focus on your kid's behavior than to really look at what... True story. Right? 
than what is really going on. It's like, oh my God, I've been doing therapy so many years to have a good relationship with my husband. Now I have to go back again and look at For all of this early wounding that is unconscious. That's what happened for me. And that's what I want to help and parents I, with. And I think this is a leadership issue. I mean, obviously parenting is a form of leadership, yes. no question. And I see this with some of the leaders I work with too, that my employees, my clients, yeah. my my direct reports or <clears throat> my colleagues, we and like they need to stop, you know, whatever yes. the behavior is and just get it. It's so connected yes. because it if but if we as leaders, whether it's parenting to the boardroom yeah. and everything in between, yes. can up our capacity for discomfort and help release That's those right. burdens, right? This is the heart of IFS. You got it. Then we can have a little bit more. Doesn't mean there isn't boundaries. Right. It doesn't mean there isn't accountability. Um, at all. It's not like whatever goes. It's just that my kid who is losing on the floor because their crayon broke. And I'm thinking, really? Yeah. Really? We've got five minutes to go. Yeah. And you have this whole world I've given you and you're crying over a crayon. Yeah. And so many parents will say, you're fine. Yeah, you're fine. I'm like, no, the kid's crying. Yeah. So they're not fine. Yeah. I'm just not okay right now about what the, what's going on. too. It, yeah. So that nuance, it's about that nuance you. there is still important. It's, about it's all you. about me. It's all about you. Like, you know, we have this mm -hmm. saying in IFS, I, um, Mona Barbera, I think is a woman who came up with it. When it's intense, it's yours. Any time you have an intense reaction, it's about you. It's not about the other person. Every single time. When it's intense, it's yours. Maybe, maybe. Like, I'm just thinking with some of the things, where I, I think I would say, yeah, I totally would say knee-jerk, yes. And then I'm pausing, going with looking at so much of the disparity of power in our country. And we but let's just take a look at racism right yeah. now. If I'm having an intense reaction, my, like my husband had a really hard experience uh, last year. Yes. Um, and, and he still has the echoes of that in his system. Yes. It's his, but it's also reflection of what culture was happening in culture too. So can you, I mean, well, there is a little still, nuance. Yeah, I, but it's still how that, affects you and what about you is affected by it. It still comes back to you. If I'm watching something on TV and I'm like, oh my God, that is horrific. That is terrible. Look what they're doing. Okay. I, I'm resonating. I'm being affected by it. And I'm, when I dig deep down, yes, I'm upset by what's happening in the world around racism and inequality and power, the abuse of power. And the reason it affects me so powerfully is because I've experienced that and it's happened to me and it's triggering mine. Okay. So what I've learned, and this is my view, you know, you can certainly have a different view, but what I've learned when I no longer carry that stuff inside of me is that I'm with pain and atrocity and inequity differently. I'm not with okay. it in a triggered place. Okay. I'm with you. it. The same thing with parenting. The, the way I can be with my kids when they're dysregulated now is so different than the way that I was with my kids when I had my trauma history still within me. Okay. Come on. That's crazy. Don't do that. We've got to go. That's about me. Now I'm in with them like, okay, it's theirs. They're having a meltdown. I can be with them. 
in supporting theirs. It well, for me, the more I heal mine, the more it becomes about them instead of me. And I could be yeah. with them. This is this whole thing. I don't we really have to get into this empathy, compassion discussion that I have a lot is when we're mm-hmm. empathically resonating, our stuff is getting activated. Absolutely. When we're compassionately with somebody. And for me, the un, the unburdened leader doesn't get triggered, but they can be with it in a compassionate stance, whatever it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the way. And, and it's not saying us feeling something is even bad and wrong. We've talked about this. Exactly. It can inform our compassion, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember when I interviewed Dick for this show, he touched on even the qualities of courage and confidence and clarity have a quality to them in the face of injustice yes. or yes. power over yeah. that still is strong. And I yes. so I think as a culture, we just need to rethink triggered and reactivity. Sometimes we pathologize that and want to just get rid of it. But it's a place of curiosity. It's a place of agency is what I'm hearing you say. When I feel that flash of intensity in me, it's an opportunity for me. First and foremost, I have to do the Y-O-U turn, yeah. the U-turn and go, okay, first and foremost, yeah. I got to get get in a place, a space, even if I have to get to a safer space to go and get curious about that. And then I'll think about how I'm going to be with you. But first the work has to be within. Um, and the more that we have the capacity to deal with those that are leading themselves, leading from more of a protected place that is, again, using the word power, you know, using the power inappropriately or, I mean, really in the sense of we're, we're all just trying to protect ourselves, mm-hmm. but how we protect can be very very painful, very disruptive to others. And let me let me break down what you said in two components, because this is relatively new for me as the more healing I've done internally. So there's okay. one way to lead when you still have stuff in there that mm. is susceptible to being triggered, okay? And yeah. as a leader, so then you do need to be with your stuff. You need to listen to it. You need to validate it. You need to let it settle down and not take over and dominate so that you can lead from that place of self energy. Okay. So that's, mm-hmm. that's being a leader while you still have traumas in you that potentially can get activated. That's when it's intense. It's yours. There's also leading when you're not being triggered much anymore. And this is an evolution of leadership that I'm seeing and feeling now. Now I'm not done, but I have just finished a huge piece of work around my own trauma history. And I am much less triggered than I used to be in general in my life. Okay. I'm not done, but I am much less triggered as a leader now. And that when you're not triggered, you are able to set limits. You're able to be clear. You're able to be confident and you're able to allow somebody else to have their reaction and have their feeling with the clarity that it's about them and you as the leader will help them with theirs because you don't have as much of yours active anymore. Thank you for that differentiation. I appreciate that. It's like a longer on ramp to change into healing. And I think we don't have that nuance um, so much in these conversations. And so thank you so much for that. Okay, you have a new book coming yes. out. I want to make sure we don't 
we have some time for that. So talk about your new book. Yeah. Tell us about your new book and, and your writing it and how people can get it. And, and this is the thing, Rebecca, this is so much about my whole journey. All of what we're talking about is so related to this book. Okay. It's really been my, it's to, uh, to date, it's been my life's work. And it's so all that we're talking about here is the, the motivation for me to write this book, honestly. And it's putting, it's called Transcending Trauma. Um, healing complex PTSD with internal family systems therapy. And it's coming out in May 19th, pre-order now, and it'll be available then. And it really is um, talking about healing violations of relationships. Complex trauma is relational violation. I've spent most of my career being a recipient of that and also healing that. And I, you know, I talk about personal antidotes in this, and this is, you know, right. I think within the first page I say, and yes, I have a trauma history, just like I've done in this podcast. So the book is very self-revealing about my history and my struggle. It's a lot of the work that I've done through this career of helping other people overcome these relation, repeated relational violations that get in the way of us being leaders, of us being good partners, of us being good parents. So for me, good humans, just good humans, right? You know, and for me, there is the timing of this is beautifully placed for me in in the way that it's serendipitous. My trauma is out there. My work around trauma is out there. And as I move into the next phase of my life, I feel like at least everybody can have that all that knowledge in one place because in this very weird way, and I'll just say this, that that I'm moving away from trauma in healing the world by giving love and compassion. There's, I've spent most of my career healing what was done to people. And I think it's, uh, there's a lot of that that's in this book, Transcending Trauma. And I feel like the next phase for me is to help bring more positive in also. There's a difference between undoing what was done to create positive and also then bringing in positive. So for me, this is a big transitional moment for me, releasing this book. I didn't realize that at the time, but this is what comes up when you write something. I'm like, my trauma and my knowledge about trauma is out there for the world to soak up and use in the way that they want to. Honestly, it's been a very channeled book. So a lot of what comes in there, I'm like, oh my goodness, where did this come from? So I feel there's a higher purpose to this book, honestly, um, which I'm so happy to share with the world. And I feel like I'm going to move into this next phase of my life now that that piece is out there. So I, it was a labor of love. I feel so good about it. I hope people like it. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. I love it, right? I really feel that. Like, I love it. And I hope people do too. You know, Frank, I didn't even touch on a fraction of what I wanted to talk to you about. Will you come back so we can talk more? Um, I would love to do that. And where can people find you if they wanted to connect with you? Um, you know, you're you get on your newsletter, connect. Where can people find you on social and, and the interwebs? Yeah, I have all these. I have Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. But really, the so I have all those channels available. The easiest way to find me is frankandersonmd.com. That's my main website. You can sign up for my newsletter there. You can connect to all my social media channels there. That really is the easiest way um, to reach me. 
um, if people are interested. And I would absolutely love to come back. This has been such a fun conversation. I'm like, we just got started here. Let's go. Just so I, no surprise. Yes, no surprise. Given our history of conversations, I knew this was going to be a possibility. Exactly. Well, thank you, Frank, so much. I can't wait for people to experience your wisdom and your heart and look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Rejection stings. The physics of stepping out into the world is inviting rejection. There is no way around it, which brings up a challenge and a choice on how to deal with this inevitable pain. As much as it is easy to write about the hero's journey, moving through rejection or even talking about it, it is a beast to live through it. Can I get an amen? Especially when you're carrying the wounds of old rejections. We too often dismiss and minimize these old rejection wounds, often as cliche or just far in the past and dealt with. But this belief minimizes the power this pain has over your present and your future. When you hunker down and press down the burdens of rejection, instead of healing these burdens, your values and your compass change, derailing you and leading you towards a crash and burn. In addition, The fear of rejection perpetuates a stigma around struggle and falling and changing our minds. It is exhausting and it is unsustainable. Frank shared his own journey discovering these truths while walking us through how he helps so many do the same. Where are you bypassing the pain of rejection in your life? What anticipatory fears do you have around experiencing rejection? And how do your fears of rejection move you away from your values and integrity, setting you up for a crash and burn? Bottom line, it is hard to be human. Relationships are work. Caring is better than bypassing and numbing. And we can't hack our way out of vulnerability of rejection. It is part of the gig of doing life with people and leading. Leading is hard. Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm, especially when there's wounds of rejection involved. You do not mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and those in your head, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader 
You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.